0: Uh, it's great to see you all this morning. Good to be together in the building for the second time. Uh, if you are, this is your first time in the building, welcome. This is the building. Uh, I won't give you the whole speech that I gave last time about how we got here in the story. If you want to hear it, you have two options. Option one is watch, watch last week's message, the, the, the beginning of it, the whole thing, if you want to. Uh, or two, the better option is, let's grab a cup of coffee. I'd love to tell you the story in more detail. I mean that. I, I know people say that sometimes and they don't actually mean it, but like, I mean that that's that's what I, literally, that's what I do. My job is to preach the word of God and to care for and walk with people and pray for people. So that's what I want to do. So don't feel like it's an inconvenience. Don't feel weird when I say that. I mean it. Let's uh, just come up, talk to me after the service. We'll get a time in the calendar right then and there, and it'll be great. Um, but, but yeah, this is a great space. We believe... Um, God does cool things all over the place, and this just happens to be one of those places. Nothing especially holy about the building. Uh, the Holy Spirit fills people, which is a miracle. It's unbelievable. Um, and when we're here, he's here. And uh, we believe he's here with us this morning. We're already experiencing work in powerful ways. Uh, we are going to um, dive into the message today out of the book of Luke, chapter 1. Before we do, though, a couple of things, uh, quick highlights about um, two things I wanted to, to kind of recap off of Kiana's announcement. She did a great job. I forgot to tell her some details though. One detail is if you noticed for the leader uh, Christmas karaoke tomorrow, it says dinner provided. That's true, but I want to frame that dinner. It's going to be like appetizers, okay? So don't come expecting a big Christmas feast and to be full. Uh, there'll be great food. It's going to be awesome. Chicken quesadillas, the whole nine yards. It's going to be great, but just, just want to frame the expectations. There's nothing worse than having unmet expectations. We all know that. Yeah, sound okay? All right, all right. Um, I felt like I had something else. Nope. lost it. It's gone. It'll come to me in the middle of the message, and I'll interrupt whatever important spiritual thing I was talking about to remind you of the announcements when it comes to me. Uh, okay, this is our text for today. It's Luke chapter one, verse twenty-six. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, <laughs> in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel said to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth Your relative is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. It's a great story, great text. Uh, Through Advent, we're looking at the names of Jesus. Uh, In our Sundays, we've looked at some of the major names out of the Gospels' Christmas stories. So, so far, we looked at Emmanuel. Last week, Mike led us through a conversation around Messiah. And today, we're going to look at the most famous name of all, of course, Jesus. The angel says to Mary, you will call him Jesus. Uh, You notice that there's a card on your seat. If you have been following along, this is our really simple Advent devotional. The front of the card, designed by our very own Angela Rogers, sitting here in the front row. Very angry with me for calling attention to her. She's an amazing artist. We appreciate what she's done for us. Uh, The text of some of what we just read is there. And then on the back of the card, just a simple, um, very simple, short devotional uh, with a question that we would love for you to discuss in community. The point of this is to have a conversation with someone, whether that's in a table or a family member or a friend, just a really simple question to dive into the name of Jesus. And we want to do that today. Uh, Also, One other quick thing. If you haven't been following along, if you don't follow the Canopy Instagram, we've been having some amazing kind of short video devotionals every week from our teaching team, which is a newly formed group here at Canopy of people who want to learn more about preaching and teaching. And they've been sharing short devotionals on other names of Jesus, like the Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, the Door, the Way, the Truth, and the Life. And they're amazing. They're so good. If you haven't been watching them, so encouraging, so challenging. uh, You need to go on our Instagram and check them out. Every day there's a new one posted. That said... We're going to talk about the name of Jesus today. Uh, And this message is going to be a little, um, just warn you in advance, a little heavier than I intended a Christmas message to be. Uh, And I struggled with that for just a bit because Christmas, in my mind, is supposed to be kind of light and fun and it's celebratory and all this sort of stuff. Um, But I realized that it's okay to have a heavy Christmas message because the first Christmas was probably fairly heavy, right? (laughs) Right? If we put ourselves in the situation of the characters in the story, which is something I encourage everyone who's reading the Bible to do, the Bible has been given to us as a story. Don't suspend your imagination when you read it. Enter into the story, enter into the world of the characters, and try to put yourself in their shoes. So here's Mary, a teenage, unwed woman that an angel is appearing to, presumably in the middle of the night, and telling her she's going to give birth to the Son of God. This is a heavy moment. All the characters in the story, whether it's Zachariah and Elizabeth, or whether it's Simeon and Anna, or the shepherds, or the, or the magi, all of them are living in a, in a heavy time, a time of occupation by the Roman Empire. It was a real-world scenario. There were no lights. There were no trees. There were no parties. There was nothing else. It was just life. It was real life that the angel showed up in. It was real life, more importantly, that Jesus showed up in, and that's what Christmas means. And it's important that we start with real life. We can get to. I, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be Scrooge here. I, if you were at West Side Nights, you know I love the lights, I love the songs, I love the celebration. But let not let's not forget the order. The order is this: Life is hard, and into the difficulty and challenge of life, God Himself comes. He doesn't stay aloof. He doesn't stay distant. He inserts Himself into our story, and out of that comes celebration. The celebration comes out of his presence. It comes through the pain, through the difficulty of real life. When God shows up, we have a reason to celebrate. And sometimes I think we forget at Christmas like the gritty real part of life. You know, it's like we fast forward to the celebration without ever dealing with the stuff. And the truth of the matter is that's why the holiday of Advent exists. It doesn't, it doesn't exist to, like, dust off the Christmas songs and warm everything up. It exists for us to take a good, hard look at real life, at the stuff around us. It exists for us to, to look at ourselves, to look at the world around, to look at the brokenness. Like, not, not gloss over it, but to look it right in the eye and prepare ourselves with longing for the coming of a Messiah who will save us. That's what the name Jesus means, Right? Luke doesn't tell us here, but Matthew's, in Matthew's version of the gospel, the angel says to Joseph, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus in Greek, it's a Hebrew word, Yehoshua, Joshua, right? Great name. It means God saves. God is salvation. That's what the name means. It means the same thing in Greek. Obviously, it's this powerful name. But you don't get it if you don't need it. Does that make sense? Need is the beginning of the good news. You have to start at a place of need, a place of desperation, a place of hunger. And that's what Advent does. It allows us to look at the world and say, this place is out of alignment with the reality of God. We need a Savior. That sentence I just said, that's my one point for the day. We need a Savior. Jesus shows up on the scene, with, and, and, and the angel says, you're going to name him God Saves. We don't celebrate that unless we have a need of it. And sometimes I think the, the lights and the, and the candles and the, and the parties and everything else are a way of, of, of sort of glossing over our need. It's a way of distracting us from the real world. We've got to start with the real world, because that's where Jesus shows up. And the real world, he says here, by his very name, is one that's marked by sin. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I know that's heavy as we're heading into Christmas to come to church and talk about sin. And I know people generally don't like it when the church talks about sin. And I have two theories as to why that is. The first one is is people's problem. It's that people don't like to be told what to do. And it seems like sin is an arbitrary set of moral codes that God hands down to us that we're expected to abide by. And in our culture, the greatest virtue that anyone can hope to attain is what? Independence. That's like the virtue of the 21st century West, where we live right now. The most important thing you can be is true to yourself. And I just want to tell you (laughs) that's not the Bible. That's not the Bible. We talk a lot at Canopy, and we'll talk more about it in the upcoming year, about freedom. That we want to learn to live free. I want to be clear on what that means. That doesn't mean that we want to learn to do whatever we want. We can do, that's easy. Anybody can do that. And that's not a biblical definition of freedom. The biblical definition of freedom is not do whatever you want. That's another form of idolatry. It's idolatry to self. The biblical definition of freedom is find your identity in Christ and do what he tells you to do. You know, in Judges, there's this, you've heard me reference this before because it's just so stark. Judges 17 says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever they wanted. Now, if you were to just put that verse, like, out of context, on a wall somewhere, people would applaud it. They would take pictures in front of it. There's no king here. We do whatever we want. But in Judges 17, that is a very bad thing. Because God, because God knows that the hearts of people are deceptive. Not completely evil. We're made in the image of God. We have great capacity for goodness, but also great capacity for bad stuff. And so our hearts are deceptive, and we have to be careful. And so no king is a bad thing. (laughs) The answer to the problems of the world that God speaks on this day is a savior, a king, to sit on the throne and save us in all the ways that we need to be saved. So I say to anyone who says the church uh, shouldn't talk about sin, uh, everybody should just do whatever they want, that's, that's not going to get you anywhere. I've had three separate conversations in the last month with people, no one in this room, different areas of my life, where I've kind of had conversations, offered some advice in different aspects, and all three of them in different ways said to me the same thing. I'm going to take what you said, and I'm going to go and figure it out for myself. Fair enough, you know. But I, it struck me after the third person said that to me that this is probably the first time in the history of the world where those words would, where people would nod along and say that makes sense. If a hundred years ago you said to someone, anyone, I'm going to figure this out for myself, they would say, Why? You've got a community of people around you who've already figured it out. You have, a leader, you have leaders who've walked that road ahead of you. Why do you need to figure it out for yourself? Do you think that you are unique and new? Do you think you have some special insight on life that no one in the history of the world has discovered? No, I say to people, we've walked these roads. We know where this leads. This like obsession with self, everyone knows where it leads. And yet we keep falling into it over and over and over again, like this time, I'm going to be the one to figure it out. I'm going to be the one who makes myself happy by realizing my dreams. Oh my goodness. I'm going to get this quote wrong, but Jim Carrey had this great line. He said, I wish that everyone could achieve all of their dreams and all their success and become fabulously wealthy and famous so they would know how empty it all is. Wow. And it's true. When's the last time you heard a celebrity say, I got everything I wanted and I'm so happy. Fabulously, I couldn't be more satisfied. That doesn't make for a very good behind the music, right? (laughs) What does every behind the music have in common? Just awful, tragic stuff that happens when we get whatever we want. So I have no problem with that. The other reason, though, I think people have a problem with the church talking about sin is that we've done a poor job of it. We've made it just sort of a moral code, you know, this arbitrary thing that God hands down just because he wants to be controlling, you know, and maybe some of that comes from our parents, I don't know. My kids might think that, <laughs> that about me, that you're just making this stuff up as you go. It doesn't really mean anything, and we might think the same thing about God sometimes. You're just making this up, like why can't I, the things that are the most fun are the things you tell me not to do. Why can't I do them? We think of God like this cosmic janitor, you know you remember the like the janitor at your school or the custodian or 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 the, the person who took care of the grounds was always getting upset with the kids for knocking something over or for being in an area where they shouldn 't be the other day i I was that guy on Friday I, I, for my wife 's school, I built this giant 20 foot tall Christmas tree that was made out of lights, the whole thing it was it was a, an undertaking, it was something it was something yeah, you can cheer if you want you should you should cheer it was it was really special, but But the whole night, I was panicked that this thing, which was quite heavy, was going to fall over on a kid. And the whole night, the kids just seemed intent on running in and out. At one point, there's a pole in the middle. At one point, these kids are swinging around the pole. And I finally had to go into janitor mode. I had to go in and say, you can't be in there. And they looked at me like, why? We're having so much fun, and you're ruining our fun. And to them, it seemed like it was capricious. It seemed like it was just me just being a fuddy-duddy. What they didn't realize is I didn't want to squish them. God's probably thinking that about us sometimes, don't you? (laughs) Don't you think? I know you think this is fun, but it's going to squish you. (laughs) It's a good definition of sin. I think I read that, like, I think Bonhoeffer or Bart or somebody said that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I told you it was going to be heavy. We've got to find ways to keep it light. Um, But no, I I think that, that we've reduced God down to this janitor who gets mad when we make a mess. And the fact of the matter is God's not the janitor. He's the architect. He's the the designer. And sin is not just an arbitrary set of rules. Sin is a rebellion against God's design. C.S. Lewis has this, if you haven't read Mere Christianity ever or recently, pick it up. He's got this great, at the beginning of it, he has this argument about um, the natural law of the world. And he compares sin to gravity. He says we have these natural laws where if you drop a rock, you know what's going to happen. And the rock cannot violate that law. He said moral law is the same way, except we have the choice to violate it. When we do, however, there are consequences. And that's the fact of the matter is sin is not God being arbitrary and capricious. It's he's designed a world that works in a certain way. And he's designed us to operate in that world in a certain way in relationship with him, in relationship with ourselves, in relationship with one another, and in relationship with the whole creation. And sin is a violation of that. It introduces chaos and brokenness into that system. And when it does, the whole thing falls apart. That's what we see. If you've read Genesis 3 recently, God, you know that Adam and Eve sin against God, and he he, he lines them all up. He lines them up with the serpent. And he says to them, there's this famous section of Genesis 3 that we call the curse. And again, even that language is deceiving because a curse is something that you just sort of arbitrarily pronounce over someone. But that's not what God is doing. In that moment, God is explaining the natural consequences of their actions. He explains to them the separation that it's created between himself and them. They're removed from the garden where he walked with them. He explains to them the separation of of kind of their own identity. They're now ashamed of who they were made to be. They hide themselves. He explains to them the separation from one another. To Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will lord himself over you. This man who was supposed to be a partner alongside you now will subjugate you. And he explains to them the brokenness they'll experience in their work in the world around them. Curse will be the ground because of you. Through hard work, you'll toil all the days of your life. All of the system falls apart when sin is introduced. It's not just an arbitrary set of rules. It's the way that things were supposed to work. And the fact of the matter is, they don't work that way anymore. And we can't put it right. This is another big deception that we're seeing in kind of this 21st century world. That if we just come up with the right advancement whether that's technological, medical, anything else, if we can just get the right thing, then we can actually build paradise. Do you know how long people have been saying that? You know, I ran across this fascinating um, article, I think it was in Time Magazine in like the 60s, where there was a a group of experts who were called to consult before a, a Senate subcommittee. And they were talking about how technological advancements by, I think they said, 1983 would reach such a point that Americans would have nothing else to do with their time. that They wouldn't have to work anymore. They said, by 1983, the average American will work 20 hours a week and will have nothing but leisure time. We're going to have to find things for them to do with their leisure time because technology will do most of the job for them. Does that sound right? Are you guys just like super rested right now? Like leisure is the story of your life? right? It doesn't work. His, his technology, let's be honest, Has technology made anyone's life markedly better, emotionally more well-adjusted, maybe easier in some ways. But I look at the world today, and I see not just young people, but all people dealing with anxiety, depression, stress on, a, on an unprecedented level. And a lot of it comes back to the thing in their pocket, the device that they carry around with them. That's just a small and silly example. But we have this mindset that we think that we'll fix it. You know, that, that mindset was prevalent at the, at the turn of the last, or, or the turn of the 19th century. The eight, sorry, I get my centuries wrong. The 20th century. The 1900s. The same mindset. There were technological advances. that were coming out of civil wars and revolutions around the world. And there was this sense that the world was finally going to arrive. And then what? World War I and World War II, and Korea, and Vietnam, and and a century suddenly that was bloodier than any other, actually than all others in the history of the world combined. And now we find ourselves entering into another new century thinking, this is the one. We're going to get it right. And what I want to say is, no, we're not. That's not to say, no, please don't hear me wrong. I do believe that people, even non-Christian people, can be good, have good intentions. And because they're made in the image of God and his grace is on them just by virtue of being in his image, they can work hard against some of the injustices and brokennesses of the world. But we will not fix it on our own. The fact of the matter is, the system is irreparably broken and we need help from the outside. We need God to show up and save us. I want to say that on a global, systemic scale, and I want to say it on a personal scale. To anyone in this room, look, you need a Savior. We have this mindset that our lives are basically okay, and we just need a few, what's the language these days? Life hacks along the way to make things better, marginally better, and then I'll be all right. If I just get this, if I can just get this job thing squared away, if I can just get this relationship figured out, if I can just get a little bit of extra money, if I can just, I'll be okay. No, you won't. Remember Jesus in John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's heavy. Let that sink in. That's where Christmas begins. With this realization that I've got nothing to bring to the table here but need. That's where the gospel begins. I have nothing but need. And in the moment you realize that, you realize that's all you need. Because he has it all. This Jesus shows up, and he can actually do something about this whole system. What's the problem? If we have this idea that sin is is just this kind of, this mindset about... um, it's just a moral code, an arbitrary set of rules. If we reduce sin down to this arbitrary set of rules, then the salvation that God comes to bring is what? It's just sort of dealing with the punishment from breaking the rules. Right? And that's how, that's how it's often preached. Is sin is these rules. I have broken the rules. I break them over and over again. And because I can't do anything about it, and there's a punishment that I deserve as a result of violating God's law, Jesus comes and intercedes. And he takes the punishment for me. How many of you heard that as the gospel? Okay, now I want to be clear. That is a part of the gospel. Okay? I, want, I, I don't want to dis- dismiss or demean any of, any of what I just said because it's true. But it's not the whole truth. You guys taken a multiple choice test recently? You know how the a, there's A, B, C, and then D is all of the above? Now let me tell you, if the answer is D... And you check A, even though you're right, you're wrong. If the answer is all of the above, then it's all of the above. And what I just described, Jesus coming and taking the punishment for our sin, is A. But there's a B and a C as well. Salvation is not just Jesus taking the punishment for our sins someday. It's also Jesus coming in and enabling us to live the lives God made us to live. In theological circles, they call this sanctification. It's the idea that in this life, here and now, we can grow in godliness and glory. We can outgrow old patterns of sin. And we can be made new. Realize that's possible? Does that sound crazy to anyone else? We can be better Not again, not in like a self help sort of way, not in this like try harder sort of way, but through Jesus, by his grace in participation with the salvation he came to bring, we can grow. Paul says that we are being transformed from one glory into another. What I take that to mean is the glory that you are made in as the image of God, you are now growing into a new glory, which is the image of Christ. Right? It's possible. That's what we mean when we say we want to learn to live free. It means we want to outgrow this stuff. We want to live into a new reality. We don't want to be the same every year. You know, I spent some time in Jerusalem, and I, I watched pilgrims, come Christian pilgrims, come to these holy places where supposedly Jesus touched this rock or prayed by this tree or, or touched this wall, and, and, and you watch them lean against this wall. There's, there's this place in Jerusalem where Jesus leaned when he, when he, when he was carrying the cross and they're so moved and they pray and they confess their sins there and I want to tell them two things first of all it wasn't there it was like 60 feet below your feet but second second what are you doing coming back year after year and confessing the same stuff i mean don't get me wrong we all struggle with things for extended periods of time but like do you want to grow Do you want to stay at zero your whole life? Like, I sin, I sin, I sin, I go into debt, and then I come and I confess and I get back to zero. And I sin, I sin, I sin, I go into debt. No, what did Jesus say? John 10, I've come to give life and give it abundantly, overflowingly. Do you want it? That's what salvation means. It means we step into God's abundant life for us. Not perfectly. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to make mistakes, but you can grow. In freedom. You can grow in salvation. Now, I know that sounds crazy. You're asking me, what what, what do you mean by that? Am I saved or not? That's that's that first, that's that A kind of thinking. I don't want to get into that conversation. What I want to get into is, do you want to become more like Jesus? Let's not just talk about heaven and hell or the penalties or or who takes. Yes, praise the Lord. He's done that for us. But now do I want to live into the reality he came to give me? The identity, the name he's given me. That's B. Do you know what C is? That he wants to use us to bring healing to the world. Now, again, we're not going to do this perfectly, and we're not going to finish the work until Jesus comes back. We still need a Savior to come and restore us. But he's come to us and filled us with his spirit so that we, his kingdom people, can be restored to our not just our identity, but our vocation in the world. So we can do the work of shepherding and stewarding and caring for God's world and everything in it and everyone in it. The Jews have this great philosophy in Judaism. It's called tikkun olam. It means the healing of the world. And in in this Jewish philosophy, everything you do on a daily basis, if you do it well and you do it to the glory of God, has the capacity to bring healing to the world. Whether that's, you know, back in the day, whether that's grinding grain or plowing a field or, sh- or, or, or shotting a horse, you know, shoeing a horse. Today, maybe it's more like writing a couple lines of code or balancing a budget or caring for kids or teaching in a classroom. Do you realize that by the spirit of God, the work of your hands has the potential to bring healing to the world? Now, you're not going to build the kingdom yourself. You can't do that. We need the architect to show up. He's the one who has the plans. He, as John says in Revelation, is the only one worthy to, open the, to break the seals and open the scroll. He will do it. But do you know what I believe? I believe that when he comes back to build the kingdom, he will build it out of the work of our hands. Does that make sense? Imagine the kingdom of God as a great cathedral. Jesus isn't just going to show up and raise it out of the ground. What he's done is he's given us each a part to play. He's filled us with his spirit. And he said, hey, you work on this chunk of rock right here for all of your life. And you, you paint over here. You know, if you're artistic, you design this angel that's going to go up on the, on the side of the, the cathedral. And if you're not artistic like me, you just hammer away and try to make this rock square. Just, just do that. And then one day, the architect is going to show up. One day he's going to show up and he's going to take that rock, that angel, that painting, and he's going to put it in place. That's how this works. The work of our hands matters. He's given us the power and the potential to bring healing to the world. Do you realize that? I have a friend in India named Suresh who works for Harvest India. And he always says, you are a very important person. And he's right. By the Spirit of God, you are an important person. You are a healer. You are a restorer. The power of God is in you to bring about restoration and reconciliation and hope and healing and forgiveness. Do you believe it? It's salvation. That's salvation. Not just freedom from the penalties of our sins. Not even just growing into our identities, but being restored to our true vocation to reflect the image, the character of God to all of the world. The answer is D, all of the above. And that's what Jesus has come to do. That's what it means when we say God saves. Let's not settle for anything less. And that's what we want to practice in this place. Church is a place to practice this stuff. Where we practice our relationship with God, where it's restored and we come. And we we sing these songs, guys, not just for the sake of... Because we like singing, although I know many of us do. But because they align us. They realign us to the character of God. We're we're expressing our love and our adoration through song together. And it's connecting relationally. He's here. There's an intimacy that comes through worship. We practice in this place. In this place, we practice a restoration of our identity with ourselves. That's why Kiana took some time to pray into anxiety and depression. And Joanne called it out. Because we're practicing a restoration of our own identities. In this place, we practice a restoration of relationship with one another. Where we love each other. As we get to know each other more and more. I always tell people, if you think this church is the best thing you've ever been a part of, it's because you don't know me very well yet. (laughs) You don't know each other very well yet. The closer we get, the more difficult it gets. And that's when actual... Restoration happens when things get hard and we stick. We choose each other through the heart. And in this place, we practice a restoration of our vocation. Not just, not just kind of corporately. I mean, that's what West Side Nights is about. That's what all the things we're doing uh, in this neighborhood is about, is restoring people. <laughs> restoring hope. Restoring dignity. But also, we release out from this place to our own vocations as healers, as restorers and reconcilers. That's why we exist, is to practice salvation. Jesus saves, and we are people who have been and are being saved. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you, and we need you. God, we don't have to look very far, I think, to see the brokenness in our world and the brokenness in our own lives. And I want to take a second. I know it's heavy, but I want to take a second just to sit there because that's where salvation begins. It begins in the real stuff of life.